to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And they're excited by the allure and the free shit and all of that stuff. But suck, suck it up, babe, because the truth is it's you're playing in the big kid's pool. And if you want to accept money and and the fame and, and fortune that comes with that, then suck up all the other stuff too. You've got to accept the negativity too. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Today, I speak to Jonathan Moran also known as JMO, Australia's biggest gossip columnist. Over the years, I've had my time with JMO. Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes disgruntled at the angle that the stories he's written about me have taken. Today, I ask him all the questions about one of the world's most controversial jobs. Who hates him? How awkward it is? Does he sleep at night after writing something horrible about someone? This episode has so many levels, just like JMO. The most surprising part of this chat is who JMO is at the core, the trauma he's endured and his daily mental health battles. It's a unique episode that takes a very different turn. JMO, we have known each other far too long. We have, very long. Jonathan Moran, if nobody knows who you are by JMO, but I feel like that is, you know, that's your fame identity. So if you don't know JMO by JMO, where are you living? <laughs> Where are you? Gemma, you are a entertainment reporter. Would you say yes. that? I'm an entertainment reporter and I know we've had this conversation before because people call me a gossip reporter and I hate it. I hate it. Gossip columnist. Yeah, I hate that too. The I'm Australian a... Perez Hilton. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, but I don't think so. I mean, Perez is amazing and really talented at what he does and and um, whatever, but I work for a newspaper. So maybe the Australian page six equivalent in New York or, you know, whatever that is, but I'm a journalist. It's a tricky role though, isn't it? Because you, how long have you been doing it? First of all, look, I've been doing journalism for 20 or so years, about 20 years this year. I got out of uni and went straight into a job. So um, yeah, 20 years, 15 years at um, the daily and Sunday telegraphs in Sydney and, um, obviously, the stuff I write there is national as well. It goes across other publications in, in News Corp in Australia. So, yeah, 15. You've been um, gossiping. I'm going to use that just because I know it'll piss you off. You're going to be gossiping for 15 <laughs> years now, and that can't always have been easy. Like, I'm imagining 
you write something about somebody and it's a bit shit or it's a bit awkward or you're blasting them with some kind of headline that can be um, derogatory perhaps. What is that like? Like do you have to have quite a strong constitution to be able to kind of push shit on people, like in a roundabout way? Yeah, look, I've, I, in 15 years I've written stories that I haven't felt comfortable with and that I, or, or not necessarily even the stories, but the, 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 the treatment of the story, so the headline or the whatever, and it's different to what my intention was. And that's tough. That's not easy. But, you know, like, the reason I don't like the word gossip writer or gossip reporter or just gossip is because um, what I do, I believe, is based off journalism. I did three years of university. I did a year's cadetship at Australian Associated Press. And, you know, I I try and um, follow, I, I don't try, I follow the rules and 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 everything that I learned as a journalist in in the job that I do. And so I do my best to treat every story I do with the same integrity as an entertainment or gossip celebrity story. I try and treat it with the same integrity that I would if I went to a press conference with the Prime Minister or the Premier of the state or what have you. People were definitely would be thinking the ones that you've pissed off, they'd be going, mm, integrity it would be an interesting word it is difficult but you know i can talk about friendships i can talk you know i can talk about you there would have been times that stories not maybe not even by me but there probably was stories by me that have been written about you or involving you or or your friends that would make it very difficult so does that do you feel like that doesn't make you very liked um the funny thing is i'm desperate to be liked in life my boyfriend often tells me that I don't have to be liked by everyone, but it's this sort of bad habit of mine that I want to please everyone. Um, You've chosen the wrong job for that. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, I conduct myself and whether that's whether people believe that or not, I, I, it doesn't really matter to me. I conduct myself. I know that I can sleep at night because I know that I will make tough calls, that I will make write stories that won't necessarily make everyone happy, but that that are newsworthy and are based on truth. So let's say that. Say you do write this story and you know shit's going to hit the fan. Do you press send to your editor and get anxiety about... No, no, not, not, not in, about anything, no. Um, I, look, I brace myself and I know that there'll be people that aren't happy, but what I try and do and you probably have experienced this, is that if there is a difficult story, I I won't be afraid to ring and say, hey, Zoe, there's a story breaking. Um, I want to comment from you because I think that X, Y, Z. And and that's my job as a journalist. And and Mm. I have to have a thick skin in that. And and I don't always have a thick skin, but I always try and front up. Um, Where it is difficult and where the lines are blurred are when um, things happen that are out of my control. So a headline. Uh, If there's multiple people working on a story and I don't have full control over the story, that makes it really difficult because um, often there will be other elements that are put into it and I don't have final say in that. That's not my, my job is to deliver it to the news desk and the news desk then pulls together the story. In a dream world, I would know every word, everything that's being said in the story, every headline and whatever, but um, that's just not the case. So that's the hard time. That's the hard time when things like that happen. Have you 
ever regretted anything that you've written? No. Has my mind changed? Has my view, has my worldview changed on certain topics? Sure. But do I regret it? No. Because that's, I'll give you an example. So Ian Thorpe, when he came out as gay, um, there was a colleague of mine who was also gay. She um, was of the view that he was entitled to come out whenever he wanted. And they wanted someone to counter that opinion and have a he said, she said, or they, one person says one line and another person says the other. And at that time, I believed that Ian took the easy way of, um, of, of, of hiding his sexuality and she took the view of it's no one's business, essentially. Mm. Now, at the, at the age of 43, uh, with a bit more life experience, um, I see it's a lot more complicated than just saying, Ian, you should have come out sooner. There's a whole bunch more factors. And do I regret that? I don't like the word regret, but would I do things differently? Yeah. I mean, I think Ian's sexuality is very much his. I think it's a shame that he didn't have the strength. I think it's a shame that he didn't have the support around him to come out and all of that. But that's all part of other factors. Um, but do I regret writing that piece? No because it re reflected my opinion on that day at that time. And opinions are like assholes. We've all got them. Mm. And that's what, if I see an opinion piece written in a newspaper or online that I don't agree with, I see it as exactly that. It's just someone's opinion. Would that have hurt Ian Thorpe at the time? If he read it, I don't know. Then yeah, probably. And I regret that because he's actually a really good bloke. Um, and the pain and the pressure that he would have felt, um, would have been immense. So, yeah, but, you know, that's the job of the media. The job of the media is to hold up a mirror, to ask questions, to reflect society. And that was, that, that, that's kind of where I sit with it. But I'm also willing to change that opinion. And I mean that in the sense that if you sat there and said that hurt Ian to the point, he's my friend and he, this, what you did, did blah, then I would acknowledge that. And I feel that and I feel that pain. Because you work with, like, you've you've written about every huge celebrity in the world. Like, it, everyone in, from D-grade Aussies to... Babe, I go down to the bottom of the alphabet. I go to Z-grade. <laughs> um, so let me just jump back again. So, yes, I'm a gossip writer, but I wear different hats. So I'm an entertainment journalist. I'm a celebrity journalist. I'm a features writer. I'm a news journalist. I'm a columnist. And all of those different roles require different hats for me to wear and different styles of writing, you know, and then I, I'll, I'll sit down. I've done interviews. I've sat down with Madonna. I've sat down with Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Kylie Minogue, you know, all of those big stars. I've covered the Cannes Film Festival for multiple years. That job is a very different job. I'm not going into that meeting room to interview Madonna looking for her to say something that's, I'm just, they're different hats that I wear for different styles of, journalism that I'm writing for each but assignment. That's interesting, right? Because you're like, you just said, I'm not looking for something on Madonna. You stopped yourself. That's, you know, that could be well, I'm looking for, or... Well, the piece is, the, the piece is different. That, that is a sit down interview where someone's in. No, I get it. Space. I get and it. What I'm saying is, do you then have an, a different agenda with a different hat when you're trying to get 
bitchy angles or see i don't see it as looking for bitchy angles i see as it looking for gossip and i see a lot of people that go to an event go to these things and they accept an invitation to an event and so many times people say they've invited they've been invited to an event and then they won't they refuse to have a photo taken or they you know they get paid to go to something and then mm. they refuse to do whatever well i'm sorry but it's free reign so what does that mean? Does that mean if someone seems difficult or someone's a diva or someone might be having a bad day and is in a bad mood, you will get that angle and say, uh, Mr. Bob rocked up with a chip on his shoulder and then he was in and out of the bathroom all night with a um, funny I'll white be... substance on his nose or something. Are you looking for that? No, because I can't just write someone had white substance on their nose. It needs to have a bit more fact based around that. But in, I'll give you an example. There was a party many, 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 many years ago and I was at the Sunday Telegraph at the time. I was there with a photographer. I was there with a friend and I'd forgotten this had happened, but I recently caught up with an old colleague who was the friend that was with me on that night. And we were there. It might have been a Fashion Week party. The daughter of a former prime minister was there and she'd accepted the invitation. She was there, but she refused to have her photo taken. We naively and, and for whatever reason didn't realise that she didn't want her photo taken. So our photographer just went up and said, excuse me, can I have your photo? Um, and this woman kicked the photographer and went mental at her. So we wrote about that story. This pr former Prime Minister's daughter invited to the, you know, what a brat, blah, blah, blah. I, I just think that you, you, if you accept the entree card into that world, then you need to accept everything that comes with it. Okay. So do you then think that you have ever been nasty and that you have ever bullied? That's a really tough question. Um, I would say no. I sleep very well at night. Actually, I don't. But uh, in terms of my moral and ethical code, uh, I sleep well at night. So, no, I don't. Would people that you have written about think that you were nasty and bullied? Probably. But those people also need to get a thicker skin. Again, they've accepted invitations into that world and therefore their life is free reign, in my opinion. If they are rooting, taking drugs, doing these things on the clock, so to speak, or within that world, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Okay, but then you're saying on the clock. What if they are? When, when you're in that world, you accept the entree card to that world. When you are selling yourself, yourself as a product, then that encompasses everything. The minute you sign a contract and you join Home and Away, you are there and your private life. And that's why you, it, it is really difficult for those young actors because they don't realise that when they sign a job to go on Home and Away or Neighbours or one of those shows, that it covers your whole life, not just the 12 hours a day that you're shooting. It's about your personal life. It's about whatever. And to be honest, they, they get paid shit money, a lot of them, and, mm. and it's not worth it. But it, it's a hard lesson to learn because it's a very attractive allure of, of, of fame and all of that stuff that comes with it. I think this is an interesting angle, right, because we've got influencers now and – uh, re reality TV stars that are just regular people that are desperate to be famous. Yes, okay, I'll give you that. They're much. not regular people, but they they are. Let's just say they're civilians that audition to go on these shows, or they're civilians that somehow get a really large following online, 
and they seem to lack the awareness of this world, right? Because like you said, you know it, I know it, we've been in it for over a decade, but a lot of these people don't know this. So yeah, get... and, they, and, they're, and they're excited by the allure and the free shit and all of that stuff, but suck, suck it up, babe, because the truth is it's you're playing in the big kid's pool. And if you want to accept money and, and the fame and, and fortune that comes with that, then suck up all the other stuff too. You've got to accept the negativity too. Are you, gro- are you grossed out then by? Yes. I don't know what you can say. <laughs> People wanting to be famous. No, I don't think. I mean, look, when I was a kid, I, got, I, you know, I remember very vividly being at a restaurant called Doyle's in Sydney and, um, you know, it was the seafood restaurant. It was exciting. Um, it was for a family, like a grandmother's birthday and Guy Pierce was there and it was sort of just after his neighbour's time. Um, I would have been 10 or 12 or whatever it was. And he was a big deal star, him, Kylie Minogue, Jason Donovan, all those dudes. And I went up and asked him for his autograph. And he was terribly <laughs> nice. You know, everyone, if you, you're kidding yourself, if you're saying you don't get excited or a little bit of a buzz by seeing someone who's famous or getting an insight into that world. So, no, I don't think wanting to be famous is gross. I think what is gross is wanting to be famous and not having the, not having the constitution. Sp- well, yes, but having the whole package to back it up and we learn on the job. But, for example, if I, I, I've said this to someone, a, a lot of people, but it, it sort of taps into the influences. If, if I'm an influencer and I'm an aviation influencer and I said to you, Zoe, that plane just there, I'm going to fly us to uh, do a joy flight over Sydney Harbour and then come back. You'd want to know if I'm actually a pilot, wouldn't you? Totally. Right. So you've got to have the skills to back it up. I'm very comfortable in knowing that I'm, I'm a good journalist. Am I the best journalist? Maybe not. Am I, am I a shit journalist? I don't think so. But I'm a good, solid journalist and I do a good job and I work hard. And therefore, if I am known or famous or, you, you know, you said J-Mo, the name, you know, if you don't know it, then you've been under a rock or whatever, then I'm happy to be known as J-Mo, the celebrity journalist, J-Mo, I hate the word gossip writer, but Jamo the gossip writer, Jamo the, the the journalist, because I have the skill and the knowledge to back it up. I think that people that that just sort of want to fly in and, you know, people that are flying in on their parents' coattails or parent people that are just wanting to be famous because their partner's famous or all of that stuff, I think it's pretty gross. I do think that's gross. Who have you bumped into or who's called you up and gone like, that was a really shitty thing to do? Brian McFadden once did when he was dating Delta Goodrum and it was a story that I hadn't done but for some reason I was implicated and I was quite good friends with Brian and I'm still very good friends with Delta actually she's an amazing human and really I went to her 21st I've known her since she was 16 she's divine but we've had a rocky relationship because of my job and her job and all of the stuff that comes with that. But anyway, there was a time that they were dating. I don't even remember what the story was because I don't think I actually wrote it from memory. I don't remember. But the, he texted me calling me a slimy fucking piece of shit and texted me and saying, how dare you, I've had you in my home, blah, blah, blah. And the hard thing for me was is, of course, a journalist or of course someone's going to say, oh, it wasn't me. But in that instance, it wasn't me. And that was a really hard thing because I can't throw my colleague or whomever else under the bus. It was a story. It ran. It, it was done. Whatever. 
Um, and like I said, I can't remember what the story was, to be honest. But that, that, that is difficult when that, when that happens. Or even harder, before you're about to write a story and you ring someone, because I pride myself on trying to go to people and be really honest with them. I think that's really shit if you don't have the balls to ring someone and say, hey, we're running this story. Do you want to have input into it? Um, mm. And there was a story recently on someone and we were, it was kind of grubby actually. And we were doing a story on this, this famous woman's, um, and this woman was famous for being famous, not for anything in particular, but just famous for being famous. And we were doing a story because online wanted a story on it, on her and her famous lovers. And oh. she was on the phone to me, just bawling her eyes out going, would you do that to a guy? Why are you doing that? It's not fair. I've got kids, blah, blah, blah. In the end, I made the ethical decision that I'd spike the story. Do I think that the story could have done well online? Do I think that the this, that, and the other? Yes, I do. I think people are interested. And, 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 and part of that kind of negates everything I've said before because my view is that, that if, you, if you accept that entree card, then you're free reign. But, you know, I'm also human. And I made the decision not to run that story. Had I run that story, I would have dealt with text and blah and blah, blah, blah for days to come. Do people feed you stories? Like All the time. do people All the time. Every day. Okay. So then how like say, um, because you know there's like a number or there used to be in the paper a number or an email send in your story about so and so person or a famous person. Yeah. How do you even know if they're true then? Then you have to stand it up. That's where journalism comes in. You can't just say let's say Jackie O is the face of Weight Watchers or something at the moment. And we used to get um, emails through where people would find it funny or texts where people would find it funny to go, I saw insert name of celebrity that's promoting Weight, Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig or whatever um, eating a hamburger out the front of McDonald's on George Street. In yeah, yeah. Um, clearly they're just having a joke. Or I saw insert name of celebrity buying um, something from, you know, a store that might, you know, like when you'd expect them to be buying Tiffany jewellery and you'd see them buying at La Visa or something like that, which there's no shame at all. But they people just think that's funny. Or So then my job as a journalist is, and from 15, 20 years of experience in this job, is I've got most a lot of people's numbers in my phones, is ringing them and go, hey, was that true? Were you at that thing? If I think it could be potentially real, or ringing their manager or ringing their whatever and saying, hey, we don't just go, we've heard that such and such is, marriage is broken up, we're going to write that story. You have to, you have to. Because isn't that guess who don't sue? <laughs> well, yeah, and guess who don't sue is a beautiful thing. Um, but, but we don't just write stuff for the point of writing it, or I certainly don't. Just for everyone that doesn't know, guess who don't sue is a little piece that gives lots of telling information without the name. So it's a, it's a blind it's a blind item. So it's, you know, which TV presenter was busted stealing a Snickers bar from their local yes. supermarket, um, shame on you, or something like that. It wasn't and, – and, you know, the point of that is it was very loose. I think half the time um, – I think it was a fa- – whoever invented it, and I think it was a, a former colleague of mine, Ros Raines, I think she invented it, and if she didn't, well, I'll give her credit for it. Um, it was a brilliant, beautiful – and she did a very good job on Guess Who Don't Sue. I loved it. I lived for it. And some people would buy the paper just for that beautiful little section because it's fun. People would text me yeah, on a weekend. Just... <laughs> Roz would write and people would text me and go, 
who, who is it this person? Is it this person? Is it that person? Is it me? Is it me? Which publicist did <laughs> Um Which publicist made a fool of themselves and got drunk and you know face planted on the red carpet at an event? And and like five publicists would message me and go, "Was that me?" Like, Ross <laughs> so Reigns did an amazing job of 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 that stuff. And um, yeah, she was one of the great gossip writers, to be honest. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I want to ask now, I want to move into you personally. Wrap yourself in, baby. (laughs) You've said a lot about your work doesn't give you anxiety, you can sleep at night, you have a strong constitution when it comes to your work, your ethics, everything is, is really intact. I think I said I try, I try, I try, and I don't sleep very well because of all the anxiety. We're going to move into that. Yeah. yeah, I Let's try. Let's move I into try. that. I try and be the best version of myself I can be, and I've been an asshole over, at different times in my life, to personally, professionally, I'm sure. So with that, right, you were saying you don't drink on the job. I don't drink at you all. Used to, you don't drink at all now, but you did. Yeah. Let's just go back to when you were less insightful mm. and in touch with yourself. Where were your big habits? Where were you drinking, drugging, sexing? What was going on in that time of your life and what were you doing? I mean, I'm look, from, from, from as long as I can remember, I am an addictive personality. So or I have an addictive personality. So chocolate. Alcohol, lollies, I love it. I still am. I love a skim chai latte and I'm naughty. At the moment, I'm on a diet. So I'll have one. I tell my dietitian that I have one a day, but sometimes I'll have two. Um, and if I really. We are not re- talking about skim chai lattes. Mate. I'm talking about my talking personality. About- and my personality is that I'm addicted. Okay. But one extra skim chai is okay. Yeah. So when I have, when I'd have one glass of wine at an event or at a private function, then I would a family function or whatever, then I, I wouldn't stop until I passed out. I wouldn't stop until I'd had 30 drinks and was vomiting. That was me. I was that dude. I was, you know, we've all known that person. Um, and I could never say no. And then when I was on, you know, when I grew up in, I grew up in Canberra, a very sort of working class family, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, all of that sort of stuff. So we, so it was never really an issue. I never, I never had an issue with, you know, when my friends in school in year 11 and 12, they'd be getting really maggot on stuff. I would be happy just getting, getting drunk on a couple of beers. You know, um, I wasn't, I, I don't think I was, alcohol was never really a major issue. The thing about alcohol is it reduced my inhibitions mm-hmm. and sorry, it was a major issue, but it, it, it was, it, alcohol wasn't my problem. The, the stuff that came with the alcohol was my problem. And that was when I got caught up in this whole world of, parties and celebrities and all of that is that you know cocaine ecstasy mdma all of that stuff would be just available um you know i've never done aa i've never done rehab i've never done 
Narcotics Anonymous or any of that stuff. But my mum died. It's now, what is it? It's, we're in 2000 and 2021. My mum died at 56 in 2009. Um, and there was a lot of trauma around that time in our life, in my family's life. My family had a lot going on. And my mum died too young. She died of cancer. Um, and that my mum was my best friend. She was a single parent with my twin sister and I. And it sent me in a spiral. And for several years after mum died, um, I was not in a good place mentally and emotionally. And my way of coping with that was just tuning out. And tuning out was once I'd have one drink, two drinks, whatever. And I'm not talking every day of the week. I can I could go weeks without drinking. I could have a drink like a drink one night and then not drink for ages. But I'm just saying I wasn't the sort of person that could just just stop at one of anything. Did that get you into trouble? It got me into trouble because I didn't look after myself the way that I should. It didn't get me in trouble from a work perspective. When I was working, I was always very clear on my professional boundaries and I would, you know, I'm clocking off now, even though there was not a clock off really, but in my head I'd be like, you know, I've done my work, pens down. I'm now going to have a drink and relax. Um, when I was traveling for work, I never let that get in the way. If I, you know, was drinking and out partying, then I would be at work at eight o'clock the next morning. It was just the rule. You can go hard, but you always show up for work and you always deliver in that sense. And I never failed. I never failed in that. How then did it affect you personally? So I was the person that would get drunk and then all the stuff would come out. So I'd be the crying person. I'd be the one ringing and, and I would ring my sister and she was living in Jakarta with her husband and kids at the time because for whatever reason they lived in Indonesia. Um, I would be ringing my family around the world. I'd just be crying. I'd be missing my mum. I'd just be like, I'd be suicidal. Um, you know, many years, uh, just preface that by the fact that I have ongoing genetic mental health issues where I suffer from depression um, and various other mental health issues and have been dealing with that since um, my first suicide attempt was around the age of 19 um, and I ended up in hospital at that time and so just that was in the background and so if you're not looking after yourself you're not sleeping well you're not eating well you're drinking too much you're burning the candle at every different end something's got to give and for me that was about five years after my mum died and my sister and her friends who are family to me um, and they kind of, I guess you could say, had a bit of an intervention and said, they call me Johnny, and they said, Johnny, you need to sort your shit, to you, shit out. And um, a woman who's like was my mum's best friend and she's like a second mum to me, she came with me to the doctor and the doctor, my GP, and my GP said to me, you need to know that you're probably not a person that can just have one drink. Was it alcoholism brought up? No, because the alcohol always led to other stuff. It's just that I was the person that couldn't do... As a whole. As a whole. It was just, it was just you're an, was, an addictive person. All of, the, all of this stuff that I was doing was really destructive behaviour and wasn't helping. And the, re the, the realisation hit me like a brick wall was I've spent X amount of years trying to get my shit together and, and talking about mental health in my personal and professional life. And here I am 
allowing myself to fall apart. And so I didn't need to go to rehab. I didn't need to go to AA or any of that sort of stuff. From that day, I stopped. I never, I haven't had a drink, haven't had any uh, drugs, alcohol since. And I mm. lie to you, the only time I've had a drink since was on the anniversary of my cousin's death each year. I have one glass of um, Captain Morgan and Coke and I raise it to my cousin Mark who died um, and because that was his favourite drink and it's what we do as a family and we send each other photos on our WhatsApp group and say, hey, remembering Mark, we love you, whatever. Can we then go back to your first suicide attempt, which... Oh, it was fun. It was a hoot. Which is making me believe there was more than one. Can we go back? There's been several. There. There's been... Um, and look... Um, it was over a, a, a particular period. I mean, it depends how deep you want to go. I was sexually abused as a kid. And the moment that I tried to kill myself was my first serious relationship. I was madly in love with a guy and he was the duck's nuts, the bee's knees. He was just amazing. And I loved him more than I loved life itself. And at this time I found out, or I believed I found out that he'd been, that he'd cheated on me. And that um, on that day, I was working at Target in the late, I was the weekend lay-by supervisor at Target in Canberra. And the, the guy who had sexually abused me between the ages of, say, 11, 12 and 16, um, I looked up at the counter and he was there and I had to serve him. Oh, my God. With the stuff that was going on with my relationship and then having to serve this guy, I literally looked at him. And I went out the back to one of my colleagues and said, you need to go and serve that guy. I, I literally, I was shaking. I started crying. I couldn't, literally was just a, a mess. And that was, that night I tried to kill myself. Okay, I just want to slow the pace down because I feel like there's a lot to unpack here. Yes, Dr. Zoe. Firstly, this person was a known person or an unknown person? Um, I went to an all-boys high school in Canberra. I used to sometimes get the bus or I'd ride my bike to school. Um, this is between year seven and ten. And um, for whatever reason, I was getting a bus um, home that afternoon and there was a bus station at Dixon and there was a public toilet at the toilet there and there's a thing called Beats or, you know, whatever um, where, where guys meet um, to have sex in public spaces. and I found that I was 11, 12, I was year seven, so 12, whatever age I was. I was younger than my fr my friends in the year, so I was on the younger side. So let's say I was 12. Um, and uh, I walked out of the toilet. I was, remember sitting in the toilet, doing a wee or whatever I did, and then walking out and sitting at the bus station waiting for the bus. And this guy said to me, you're gay, aren't you? And he would have been, so I would have been 11, 12, 13. He would have been... Um, 25 26 and he was morbidly mm. obese like i'm talking jab of the heart huge massive big dude um and it happened from there he played mind games with me and it went on for many years i see so he groomed you he groomed me and he used to do things like say to me you know it would be an exchange i would do something for him and he would do something for me or the only thing is he never did anything for me it was only 
uh, he, uh, me giving up my side of the bargain and then, and then him going, oh, sorry, I haven't done that. But he would offer to, he would say to me that there were other people in my school that were also gay or confused with their sexuality and he would introduce me to those guys. And I was desperate to feel that connection and desperate to feel that with other people my own age but I also had this huge sense mm. of shame because it felt wrong and society told me it was wrong. And so I would do the things for him that he needed me to do. Um, and then eventually after a couple of years or whatever of that, because I was so young, the, it wasn't a threat of doing stuff for him. It, the threat became do this for me or I will tell people you're gay. And I know everyone. So, so awful. you, you will you will be in trouble. And he used to do things like he would ring my family home phone. I don't know how he got the phone number. And I would answer him. He'd go, and he'd say, lucky you answered, isn't it? Because if you didn't, I was about to. And, you know, how, how would you feel if you were a 13, 14-year-old guy, kid? Still a kid. Mm. But then I have all this sort of unpacking drama of, of in my head of, well, I was, you know, this was happening up until the ages of 16. Um and so therefore I was old enough to know better and I should have stood up to him and, and did I ask for it? You know, all of that traditional stereotypical victim stuff. What happened to the guy? Uh, I approached him many years later. Um, I sought legal advice when I was strong enough to. Um, and I was told, look, it's my word against his word. Um, and there's nothing I could do. I had meetings with the DPP in Canberra. I had meetings with police. There was other things going on, but there's reasons that I had these contacts and it was not to do with work. It was to do with personal stuff um, and other family stuff. And I brought up all of my stuff. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, historical rape cases or historical sexual assault cases are very difficult to prove and handle. Um, And the truth is that he would probably get away with it. So... In my process of several years ago um, dealing with trying to get my shit together, I messaged him. He came up on a Facebook thing and I messaged him and said, you know what you did to me? And then we had a back and forth and he denied it and then and then he apologised and, um, and then he deleted me on Facebook. So I don't know where he is now and I don't really want to know. That for me was the closure I needed on me being sexually assaulted. The acknowledgement? Well, in the end, he acknowledged it, but just saying I was on drugs. He, he, not me, I was on drugs. I had bad issues. I'm sorry if that's what you think I did. Um, it wasn't oh, my intent okay. or something. You know, I was in a really fucked up way. and But it was what I needed. Mm. So, I mean, I needed some sort. That was the closure that I was going to get, and that was the closure that I got, and I have to live with that. What do I do? Go to the police and say I was this age, but this is 25 30 years ago, um, you know, my only fear is that he would do it to other people and I'm sure he has done it to other people. But unfortunately, um, I didn't have the strength at the time to stand up to it. And therefore, it is what it is. I made a police report years later, as I said, and so I put it on there and I said, I want this to be on my statement so that if someone else ever comes out with similar allegations that 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 there's another person so you know that was important to me and i did that as part of my process but you know i can't i can't bear the pain of 
I just, I just, I, I, I've got to let it go. When you saw him years after, what? How old were you at Target? Nineteen. And you met the this love, and you had this beautiful relationship. And then I tried to kill myself, and I went into a downward spiral, and I fucked his life up and my life up because the the guy that I was seeing. And even years later when I saw him, this guy was fucked up because of what I had done to him by trying to kill myself. His guilt was that he had caused me to try and kill myself and therefore he harboured a lot of pain from me. But at that time, the only way to stop the hemorrhaging of pain was to take these tablets and just hope that I would fall asleep and not be around anymore. And it was, everyone says how selfish that is and it is, but when you're in that pain, you cannot, I could not think about anything but getting rid of that pain. And I genuinely 100 million percent believed that the world was a better place. It would be a better place if I wasn't in it. Now that you can look back at this and you can look back at that sentiment because you know we've talked to people that on the deep that have lost people to suicide and they have most probably had that thought as well Mm. is it so hard in that moment to believe anything other than that yeah you know obviously it's not going to be better obviously it's not going to be better without you but is it so impossible? Yeah, when you don't think that you're worth anything, and this is, sorry, I'm feeling quite emotional, but when you feel like you're just a vessel for someone else to get off, when you feel that your life is worth nothing, then it's not that hard a thing to see why someone wouldn't think that they're worth anything. And I genuinely believed that the world would have been better without me in it. And I didn't think about the pain that that would cause my mum or my twin sister, my other family members and the people that I love. And now I can see why, but then that was all I could see. And so I therefore don't think that telling people that it's selfish is not a useful thing. Certainly not in the time. Afterwards, dissect it, sure. But at that time, my pain was so great that I could not, I didn't have the capacity to feel anything other than that. What is that like for your mother, you know, to find her boy surrounded by packets and drugs and in so much pain? She just wanted to wrap me up in cotton wool and it, and I'm devastated that I did that to her. But my mum understood because my mum also had serious mental health issues and she too didn't spend a great chunk of her life not wanting to be a, around. And the reason she was alive was because of my sister and I. And the reason that I'm alive, in all honesty, and I believe this, is because of my mum and my sister and my nieces, if they weren't alive, if they weren't there for me, then I would not be here. I would have killed myself for sure, 100%, because for a long, long time, the only reason I had to get up every day was for them. 
and I would see no reason to be alive. And I'm talking even at the most successful points of my career, I would get up, the alarm would go off or the perception that I was being successful. I would get up and I would go through the motions and I hated myself. And I still feel that I have to stop myself. Um, if I allow myself to go to a dark place, then I feel worthless. And I'm that 13-year-old boy that's standing there with this obese, horrible person masturbating on me. And I feel worthless. Did you tell your mum about the sexual assault? Yep. At that time? Uh, no. After. Around the time of that suicide attempt, yes. But not in detail, but yes. Yeah, and she felt guilty. She blamed herself for not being, you know, my mum was a, she, I did have a stepdad at that time, but she blamed herself for being a workaholic, for her own mental health issues, for all of these things. And, and yeah, it was, it was tough. So, so tough. But I guess the message is that no matter how much it looks like everyone has their shit together, because a lot of people would think that I have this amazing life. It's not, it's not, you know, we're all dealing with our shit. And the impact, you know, the impact of that sexual assault on who you are, you know. Well, what it did was it made sex transactional for me. So I would feel that for that minute that, someone wanted me even if it was just they didn't actually want me but they just needed to get off that I was worth something uh I've done a lot of work on it with psychologists and stuff um and I go back and forth and and the pain rises and and it made sex a very difficult thing for me to it still is if I'm brutally honest I was going to ask that, and I know that's incredibly personal, but has you've just said that's changed your relationship with sex? Well, yeah, it was a transactional thing. You know, I was I literally painting a picture. It was a 13-year-old, probably barely had pubic hair, and had this man who would have been 150 kilos masturbating on me. He never penetrated me. He never fucked me, but he would always, he would masturbate on me. And I was that vessel, that, that piece of meat that would lie there like a dirty piece of shit and he would do what he needed to do. Then I would go to the bathroom, I'd wash myself and then I would go home. The only one thing that he ever gave me was a Take That book and it was a tour program from Take That. And I was so stupid that he, he told me that he knew people in the band and this was when Take That, Robbie Williams and the guys were really famous and um, he told me he would introduce them, me to them when they next came to Australia. So I'd be there, wash the cum off me, feeling pretty shit, but then have this thing in my hand. I, years later, I threw it out, and that was a healing process for me. But it was that reflected that that moment, and it, you know, that's all I was worth. That abuse. Where did it take place over the years? At his house eventually he's like oh well why are you waiting for a bus i'll give you a lift home and then he'd go oh, we'll just stop at my house and then you know i mean look it wasn't penetration it was just years of other stuff so then i play it down in my mind that you know was it really rape it was sexual assault it was 
you know, anyway, it is what it is. It's something I have to sit with. It's something I live with. And sometimes it's really tough. Um, I think today is going to be a really tough day for me because it's um, bringing up a lot of emotion. But, um, you know, there's where this story comes from and where my life has gone and there's stuff I can't talk to you about on this podcast, not today, maybe in 10 years, um, you would die. The trauma and the pain that has been felt, but it just is. This is just the icing on the cake, my friend. And there's only so much pain some people can endure. I'm a survivor. I really am. And I, and I feel that it's my duty because I have strength to share this story with you and your listeners. And even if just one person listens to it and they feel that they are heard, um, that might sound naive and stupid. But if, if I share my story and have the strength right this second, then, you know, hopefully something good has come out of the, the shit that I've been through. That sounds a bit arrogant, and I don't mean it to sound in an arrogant way because no, it it, I don't want it to sound like I'm like, mean. oh, I'm fucking saving the world like Oprah. But it's, you know, like a lot of people aren't in the fortunate position that I am. Um, and, you know, the alternative was go down a very dark path and, and not be here or be an ice addict and whatever. Uh, and I could see how that could have happened. But I'm, I'm, I, I want to be... And that's why my family kept me alive. And on my darkest of days today, tomorrow, yesterday, when I feel in that really dark spot and I allow, if I allow myself to go there, then they're what keeps me going and my partner. All up, how many times have you tried to take your life? Uh, probably only five or six. Uh, Not only, oh my let's God. Let's say five. The first time. And then I was in a psych ward for two weeks in Canberra. Uh, and then I went home and then I tried it again a couple more times. And then later, but they were the most, look, that period was the, you know, it was in and out of hospital and dealing with stuff. It was, that was between the ages of 19 and 22. And yeah, that was, that was when it was. And then sometimes these days, as I get older, I can feel my, I, you know, I feel like I'm, spiraling in whatever re for whatever reason emotionally then i will go to the gp and i have an amazing gp jane uh she's incredible a lovely wonderful woman and she um yeah she gets me back on the on the psychologist train or psychiatrist but it's expensive you know i earn a decent living and i still 300 dollars a week when you get 70 dollars of that back from medicare that's i can't i, I literally at this moment in my life i couldn't afford to have a meltdown. I can't afford financially to do it. So I was thinking about that last night. <laughs> so I just have to keep my shit together. Which sometimes isn't just on your terms, is it? No. I mean, mental health is a, a slippery no, thing. No, but it, you know, it, the thought of people that aren't as uh, in the position that I'm in that have to deal with shit um, you know, I can afford emergency care. I couldn't afford $300 a week ongoing. No way. Um, but if I needed an emergency something, then I, I would I would be able to sort it out. Or I have family, friends, people that could help me if I needed to. But there's a lot of people that don't have that. It's an interesting point, though, isn't it, that, like, being mentally well is for the rich. Yeah. Because then you can afford all of this it support. It is, but being well in every sense is for the rich. 
in every sense it's for the rich mm. you know the rich get richer the poor get poorer and no one gives a shit about the poor people that are suffering with mental health thing for all the noise and the the different campaigns that they have going on in the world um it's all very mm. tokenistic and the reality is that uh you know there's a lot of people doing amazing stuff i'm not trying to discount that but you know a lot of the governmental stuff you know when money's cut from health budgets in it's in mental health space um and who's making the decisions mm-hmm. it's white middle class men yeah who make the decisions for everyone else that doesn't fit into that category <laughs> it's pretty depressing it's very, very depressing. Are you currently medicated or have you um, I've been? recently come off uh, some medication, but I'm on, I've been on Seracol for the last six years, which helps me sleep. So that's why I say I'm not sleeping very well at the minute because it's taken me a year to get off the medication. Um, it was a nighttime medication. I take two tablets and it's a heavy duty antipsychotic and I take it of an evening and it helps me sleep. Um, it basically just means I don't dream. I literally take the tablet within half an hour. I'm like, yep, blissfully sleeping. Whereas now I feel like I haven't slept in months, literally. Your decision for coming off that? Well, firstly, I put on a lot of weight. It's a medication that um, makes it very difficult to control your weight, um, makes you eat a lot more and it makes it tough. And I'm through COVID and all of that sort of stuff, I've been struggling with my weight. I've never been a fit person, but um, I've been, sorry, I've, I'm, I'm not like a ripped six pack dude, but I'm fit and healthy ish. Um, but I just, I was sick of that and the weight kept creeping on and, and it was harder and harder to lose the weight. So the doctor said the only way to do that is to get off the Seracol. So I still take three Prozac tablets in the morning. Took that, I take it every morning like a ritual. Uh, and that's the only med- mental health medication I'm on at the moment. I've also got arthritis and all that, so I take my arthritis medication. But other than that, yeah. God, you have been so brave sharing that with us. And I'm really surprised and shocked because, I mean, how would I know? You just don't know what people have gone through. We never know what someone is going through or what, you know, and for that reason, when we the 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 dichotomy of what our first half of this conversation around guilt, regrets, writing stories about people's lives, you know, that's not lost on me, Zoe, um, at all. But I still say that I conduct myself with in the best way I possibly can, and I see myself as a journalist. I don't because I. I, I try and treat, as I said earlier on, the, the stories about people's personal lives with the same integrity and ethical border, a baseline than I would if I was doing a story on politics or courts or any of that sort of stuff. I don't always get it right, but I try. And I'm human, I think. I don't know if you've heard this podcast before, but... There is a question that every guest gets asked at the yeah. end. Who are you when no one's watching? Uh, I'm feeling pretty empty if no one's watching. But in life and in the process of me healing, I have found the joy of life, and I mean that with everything that it entails, 
and I want to be alive. And it, it took me getting to rock bottom to get to that. So for me, life is about enjoying every moment I can, trying to, um, acknowledging the pain, sharing that pain in the hope that it helps others and being as truthful as I can. I, no one can hurt me any more than I've already hurt myself. Uh, and therefore, I try and live my life with truth and integrity. So when no one's watching, often I'm lonely, often I'm sad, um, mostly I'm hopeful and I, and, I, and I want the world to be a better place. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's The Deep. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting. It's quirky. It's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you will hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.